Mine was last week, I was in Rochester, Minnesota, a few thousand miles from here, and my art was in a holy place. And it's because I went up there to visit my youngest daughter who is in uh, recovery and living in a sober house and doing very well, doing splendidly well. The reason for the visit that day was uh, she signed the membership book at the Rochester Unitarian Universalist Church. Her sister and I were there weeping, and she's up there beaming because she knows she's in the right place. They're helping her, she's helping herself. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So after that ceremony, we went to lunch. The three of us sitting outdoors. And for the first time in 12 years, those two sisters were seated across from one another having a meal. One had been on the streets, drunk all that time, and the other carefully staying out of the way but helping any way she could, never, ever, never assisting her to stay, stay drunk. So I was trying to listen. I knew what this service was about, and I was trying to listen to the words, but I couldn't, I couldn't hear anything. It was like hummingbirds going like this. It was like I heard a Gershwin tune. You know, these two kids talking, and I heard like bees buzzing. It was startling. I mean, I could hear words, but I... ever. Then, you go out into the public. Rochester, as you might know, is home to the Mayo Clinic. Population there is 140,000. 50,000 work for the clinic. So when you're in that town, there's an aura. There's a mystery of some kind. It's, a, it's like a healing I, I, I'm sort of chatty and garrulous, and so I chat with people, and I met drivers, nurses, cancer specialists, janitors, all there for a reason. They all, they all care about what's going on. Then I met dozens of people visiting their families who are at the clinic. They wear badges so you, you can identify them and they didn't mind talking usually. So when you see them, it's serious. There's no coffee, coffee hour chat when you're talking to people like that. They're terrified, they're getting bad test results, they're getting discharged, healed. All these emotions are going on all around you. You can't, you can't go anywhere that you don't feel this. And I, I sometimes get that feeling here, but this was intense. I'm not sure what I wrote down here, but this is what I'm remembering. My ears and my mind and my heart were pummeled by the sincerity of everyone, not everyone, of course, 
Some guy tried to cut me off on the freeway. <laughs> but you, you get a sense there that you're in a holy place. There's, a, there's, a, there's an absolute happy mist in the air. Nobody says, have a nice day. They say something serious. So I hope that that experience helped me to listen more carefully with my ear, let it all sink in, not just the ear, but the judgment with comprehension and compassion. Thank you for listening. Will we listen? So what have we heard so far this morning? We've heard Jacob Trapp remind us that one half of language is listening, listening to the speech and to the silences of others. We've witnessed how the rabbit in our story for all ages knows just how to be and how to listen for the heartbroken tailor. First, oh, that wonderful image, just being a warm body against the child's back. Then when that palpable warmth opens up something in Taylor, the rabbit just listens. And the just listening makes space for Taylor's big feelings to be expressed and to, and to roll right on through. The listening makes space. I keep, I keep picturing here that listening is like an actual tool that a contractor would use in building a home, making sure that the inside is open, expansive, with room for all that we are. The rabbits listening build space for Taylor so that Taylor can regain their own strength and hope. And now Taylor can see that there's a path forward even, even after a terrible disappointment. Now Taylor can make something new. When I am troubled, will you listen to me? We sing. Then I may learn to love as you do. Then I may learn to love. Why do we listen? Because listening can make space for the other person to feel, to grow strong, to begin anew, and to love. We've listened to each other's joys and sorrows, and we've found our hearts to be in a holy place. And then Brian's tender, broken, open-hearted stories about his recent trip to Rochester, Minnesota, they just expand that holy place, don't they? He listens as his daughters begin to reweave their lives and their love together right in front of him. He listens as person after person coming from or going to the Mayo Clinic speaks with a depth of vulnerability and 
authenticity that, that change him. He comes home wanting to live every day with more depth, with this kind of loving attentiveness. So why do we listen? Because when we listen, we may be the ones who are transformed. Okay, so all of this is what we've heard so far today. And to be frank, darlings, this is what we ministers usually call the pastoral part of a service. This is the part that tends to us personally and interpersonally. Listening changes us in pairs and in small groups. The pastoral part, you know, is where we comfort the afflicted, where we help to heal our own tender, wounded hearts through listening. And it's important. Still, we just would not be true to our Unitarian Universalist selves if we didn't turn now to the prophetic. This is where we afflict the comfortable, where we turn from the deeply personal to the systemic, which, spoiler alert, really turns out to be deeply personal too. So thank you, Bruce, for offering us the wonderful surprise of your new song. What a beautiful, perfect bridge from this personal individual frame to a wider, more embracing, and more troubled view. In the song, we feel the vast gulf between those inside and those outside. Some feast on riches, some on stones. This kind of world that we live in is not fair, not equitable. It doesn't make space for the full humanity of any of us as it is right now, whether we're feasting on riches, choking on stones, or someplace in between. As long as there are voices unheard, as long as there are whole groups of people who are under real threat right now of being erased, as is happening in our, in our queer communities, our disabled communities, our communities of color, as long as economic and environmental injustice are, are already and have been devastating the poorest, most at-risk communities. Well, none of us is really free until all of us are free, as Fannie Lou Hamer will not let us forget. But we have the power to change things, Bruce's song says. Who's the we in that sentence? We always have to ask that. Who's the we? We at the feast, the song answers. We allies and accomplices. We folks with any or, or several of the identities that get some advantage or privilege or access to decision-making power within these hierarchical social systems, within all the isms that shape and cramp us all. We can open the door, Bruce's song promises. And what's our stance as we open the door? The song tells us this too. Are we to be like, like saviors, like, like we're the good ones, 
Like we're the only people with power in the room? No. The song says the key, the key is to listen to what others tell us, to hear and believe, to truly believe, to quiet our voices and listen some more. So we allies and accomplices take part in this social revolution, both by actively showing up and leaning in and by leaning back, by yielding our own chance to be heard. Dear ones, when I first became a Unitarian Universalist, it was back in 1997 at All Souls Unitarian Church in New York City. And I love the fact that this largely, but not exclusively ever, white congregation has a partner church that is almost all black. The Church of the Resurrection, which is a United Church of Christ Congregationalist Church, is three long crosstown blocks and 40 of those shorter uptown blocks away from All Souls. It's a distance to cross when some of us All Souls folks volunteer at our partner church's after school program, the Booker T. Washington Learning Center. And I, I want to walk that distance. I want to be part of bridging the gulf between the Upper East Side, where All Souls sits comfortably, well-endowed, and East Harlem, where the Church of the Resurrection is striving to stay afloat. I want to bring people together and create this gorgeous, multicultural, multiracial, meaning-making, building relationships group of human beings. Because ever since I was a child growing up in Texas, I've been seeking a way to heal my own soul wounds from the racial divisions I witnessed there. Maybe this is a way I can heal my, my young 40-something Unitarian Universalist self thinks. Maybe I can help to heal myself and help to heal others. In 1997, I am part of a writing and improv group filled with actors. I can imagine how some of our writing prompts could work beautifully to draw out the stories of this diverse group of adults. Now, mind you, in March or April of 1997, I'm not even a member of All Souls yet. But you know, I've been showing up every week for a couple of months, so I schedule a time to see the senior minister and I tell him my idea. He listens. And then, without offering a direct answer, he invites me to an upcoming meeting with the partner church leaders and, and some of the All Souls core volunteers that'll take place right there in his big fancy office. When this group gathers, we go around the circle sharing why we're each here and what we hope for in this partnership. I briefly sketch out my idea about the writing storytelling group. And then something, thank God, calls me to listen, to really listen. 
I hear the Reverend Leroy Rixey, Church of the Resurrection's pastor and the founder of Booker T Learning Center, talk about the community's struggle with education. For many parents in that community, their own foreshortened education is a, is a sensitive and painful subject. It is the legacy, really, of centuries of educational inequities and injustice. And it's tough now for their children to receive the support they need. The mission of Booker T. Washington Learning Center is to reverse, is to reverse that legacy. The focus is on the children and on their joyous, healthful growth. Listening that day, I experienced the first profound and necessary revolution in my journey toward becoming an anti-racist ally and accomplice. I learned that in this group, I need to lean back, to grow quiet, to see, hear, and feel how the space can open up for the brilliant and powerful voices of the impacted community. I need to listen and learn from those leaders, like the late beloved Reverend Leroy Rixey and others. I need to learn from them whether there is something I can actually bring to the work. And if so, how can I best show up in service to that larger mission? So this personal story starts to wake me up to why listening is, is always the first step, as well as the ongoing driving force in faith-based community organizing, which I've spent 18 years now engaged in with PACT, first as a community leader and then on staff. Really, listening is always the first step and the driving force in, in any effective movement for justice, equity, and compassion. It goes back, this, this, this prominence, this importance of listening comes back around to the one-to-one -one encounter, a bit like those we've been hearing about all morning. An organizer, like, like a member of the, or a member of the impacted community or a member of a partner congregation, invites someone whom they, they know or they don't at all to get together at a coffee shop or in a park or, or on the church patio. And this encounter has an explicit intention. It's an invitation to be fully human together. Yes, we both share our stories, and if we're the person who's done the inviting, we keep ourselves to talking, to, to filling that space for just 20% of the time. We listen, we really listen for 80%. We consciously shift the power through listening. This is, this is whether we're someplace in this hierarchy of systems and isms that puts us in an advantage place or whether we are on equal footing with the person that we are listening to. 2080. 
You can imagine, it's a challenge for me. <laughs> and it's so important. We may, ask, we may ask questions like these. How are you and your people doing? What brings you to this church, to this town, to, to this work? What keeps you up at night? What's in your family or in the community or, or in the world lies heaviest on your heart? What brings you hope? Tell me about that. And finally, well, would you be interested in getting together with other people who share some of these same heartaches and hopes to find out how we might make some changes? When we are the ones being listened, listened to, I can testify. <laughs> oh, it has made me feel. And I pondered whether I wanted to use this phrase, but I can't come up with something equally good. It makes me feel like a million bucks. <laughs> it is so life-giving to be seen and heard. And when we are the ones listening, I know I always feel amazed, inspired, and, and flat-out grateful for the strength and the beauty of this human being in front of me, this person who's still here as each of us is still here in spite of every obstacle. We laugh, we cry, we wonder together. At its best, this one-to-one -one in organizing is an I-thou experience, a connection that breaks through the walls that society tries to build between us. Once two human beings have shared that kind of connection, we will show up for each other. And this is where listening helps us to build power. I'm laying out a, a kind of map here without doing it tremendously explicitly, but these are the steps to making change. Because we keep widening the circle, each of us creating more and more one-to-ones, growing the numbers of who will show up for each other, who's engaged, who's actively embodying our faiths. Through this act of listening and building the numbers of connected, committed people, community leaders, who may have never felt heard before, grow the certainty that those, their own, once silenced voices will be and must be heard. Heard by both allies with decision-making power who've been hungering for the backing that, that they can use for the good of all. So now they feel empowered too, as well as heard by those who stubbornly cling to power just for themselves and for the tiny few. They too now must listen if we hang in. The labor movements that we honor this weekend are built on this methodology of listening and then of uniting around what we share. So, from the deeply personal to the local neighborhood to the broadest societal scale, 
Why do we listen? Because listening is at the root of all change. Listening creates and expands human beings' sense of belonging, which means, which means really it creates and expands love and life. Whether we are in Rochester, Minnesota, being transformed personally as Brian was by all that we're listening to, or whether we are in East Harlem or East Palo Alto, participating in the transformation of a society too long divided by fear and hate. We, yes, you and I, in all our own diversities, can bring this spiritual practice of listening everywhere and anywhere. Like right here, in this hall, in these online spaces like right here in this very room.